The scripture reading for today is uh, Romans 15, 8 through 13. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles, sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, let all the peoples extol him. And and again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Thanks, Chris. Uh, Let's start with prayer. Uh, Father, um, we are desperate for you. We need you. Um, The church would not exist without you. Um, So, Lord, please come and be with us. Um, Show us your word. Show us your beauty. Show us your glory. Fill us with hope, we pray. And, Lord, we want to pray for those who aren't able to be with us this morning. Think of Jeannie, uh, who fell this week and has um, really um, deeply bruised uh, herself. Father, I pray that you would give her comfort in the midst of her recovery. Uh, Lord, as she's dealing with the pain and the the effects of the painkillers and all of that, Lord, please give her strength and uh, and bring her healing. And Lord, I pray that we would be able to worship with her again tomorrow, uh, next week, that uh, she'd be restored enough to join with us. So have mercy on her. And Father, we we pray for uh, Rachel LaFoon with the passing of Ron recently and Rachel now moving to be with her son. Uh, Father, would you uh, connect her well where, is, where she is in, in Las Vegas? I pray that the church that uh, Tim and Michelle attend would welcome Rachel uh, warmly and feel very much at home very quickly. And Lord, I pray that you would help us fill that void that uh, Ron and Rachel will leave as they move on. Uh, so Lord, uh, be with us in that time as well. Father, I pray for the country of Myanmar. Um, I got an email this week from my friend Ronald. Thank you for his safety so far. But uh, Lord, hearing that the government, the, the military junta has released criminals and is just trying to create chaos in the, in the nation so that they can claim they have to um, impose martial law and uh, have to do these things in order to, uh, to establish themselves as some sort of legitimate government. Lord, uh, thank you for the citizens rising up and filling in where the the government is intentionally being negligent. Lord, one of the things that you have given government the responsibility to do is is secure the peace of the nation. And uh, Father, with this military junta playing games at that, Lord, I pray that you would judge them, that you would hold them responsible for neglecting the the ordained role that you have given the government to, um, to do there. Father, I pray for peace in the country. Thank you for the protesters not backing down from uh, the police nation or the police who are are, are trying to arrest them and for the uh, uh, opposition to the illegal ruling uh, military people. Uh, Father, I pray for uh, your church in the midst of all of that, that in the chaos, in the the struggle, in the difficulty, Lord, that your church would be preserved, that you would keep her safe, and Lord, that she would maintain her witness in the middle of all of those things. Um, have mercy on them, we pray. Thank you again for keeping Ronald safe, Ronald and his, his family and the church that he's part of. Would you continue to watch over them? 
And Father, we pray for Bob as he's in Liberia. I uh, pray that you would continue to give him uh, success with the, the students that he's teaching, uh, that he would have the, the time and the resources to spend with them to really build the church in Liberia, to strengthen her there. Uh, Lord, that you would rescue um, this handful of pastors he's working with from the lethal influence of the prosperity gospel. And uh, Lord, help them to focus on, on the glory of Christ above the glory of riches. Uh, so, Lord, uh, thank you for sending Bob there, and I pray that that would be his lasting impact is to focus these men on the scriptures and on Jesus Christ rather than uh, the, the confusing messages from the world around them. And, uh, Father, we pray also for our, our reopening. Uh, Lord, uh, just the possibility that that could be coming up this spring, uh, it fills us with hope. And so, Lord, would you continue to uh, bring the virus under control? that the numbers of sick people would continue to dwindle. Father, that um, we thank you that the most recent vaccine has been approved, that it is a single dose, that it can be stored at a refrigerator instead of sub-zero temperatures. Uh, Lord, this is all tremendous good news, and it is all a sign of your blessing and, and your common grace on people who really don't deserve it. So, Lord, would you continue to do that? And in the meantime, Lord, fill us with hope of, uh, of re rejoining together in the facility. Um, thank you for the, the glimmer of hope and, and at the end of the tunnel there. And so, Father, I pray that you would bless our desire and make that a reality uh, that this Easter we would celebrate together uh, for your glory and for your name. And Lord, to that end, I, I pray for the message today as we hear about how you have built the church. Uh, Lord, that that would remind us that Though we're small, though we're dispersed, though we're meeting over Zoom, Lord, there is a greater, a more gigantic reality of the church that is what is your, it, it, that is what you're accomplishing in the world. Uh, so Lord, fill us with, with that, um, that blessing that you give to your people. And Lord, we ask that you be with us now in Christ's name. Amen. So... Um, Early creeds, early confessions of the church um, had a strange statement in them. I, I remember repeating these creeds and, and never really thinking about it, but looking back now, it, it's an odd statement. Uh, the Apostles' Creed at one point says, I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Now, out of that list, you can't see the Holy Spirit. You can't see, though you can experience the communion of saints, you can't see the forgiveness of sins or the resurrection of the body because it hasn't happened yet, and the life everlasting is yet to come. But I believe in the Holy Church. Um, we have to believe in the church. It's a, it's a, a statement of doctrine. It is, it is a, a cardinal truth that we have to believe in. The Apostles' Creed was probably written in the first century, maybe around 140. A little later, the Nicene Creed says, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, kind of mirroring what the Apostles' Creed said. Again, I believe in the church. Why do we have to confess that we believe in the church? We are the church, right? We are the, we are the people uh, is who the church is. So what does it mean for us to say we believe in the church? Um, well, what I think we're going to learn today is that we have to believe in the church because it's a unique Supernatural work of God. 
it isn't just what we see and, and think of when we talk about how we get together. There's, there's something dynamic that God is doing there. And so we need to believe in the church. We need to have faith in that. Um, the church is a gathering of people. It's an association of people, but it's unique because, uh, for example, the Rotary Club, uh, it's an association of business and professional leaders, but it's not supernatural. These people get together because they have some common interests. They have some common thing that they want to do. They're, they're uh, business and community leaders. They're, they're interested in benevolent work. Um, they associate because they want to, uh, because that's a decision that they've made. I know a man who uh, joined the Masons because he was looking for employment, and he wanted to get together with the other Masons because that was a group of businessmen and, and connected folks. And so he would join with them so that he might be able to find employment. Um, when we planted a church in Illinois, our pastor joined the Chamber of Commerce in the town that we were, we were planting in just so he could make connections and begin to get to know the, the community leaders. Um, so these are associations. These are groups of people that get together uh, for specific purposes. Think of parents joining a PTA. They'll join a PTA that's at the church or at the school that their children go to. And then when their children age out, they tend to not participate in the PTA. They want to be involved in their children's education through this free association in, in, that, in that group. Um, but the church is not like that. It, it, it is in one way that in that we do have these associations and we voluntarily join this and we're together as a, a church body. Um, and I've got to admit that people can have and do join churches for exactly those same reasons. Uh, business associations, uh, watching out for their kids, uh, getting to know people in the community, that kind of thing. But when we talk about the church from the perspective of like the creed saying we believe in the church, we're, we're talking about the church being something much more. The church has something that's bigger than that. Um, we do have, um, at its heart, we do have something in common in that we are here for Jesus Christ. We're here because we are believers in Jesus Christ. But even then, consider what the church looks like. The apostles, for example, included fishermen, a tax collector, a political zealot, and a Pharisee. That's a very diverse group of people. They don't have any one thing that they were all in common searching for. The, the fishermen were just ordinary day-to-day -day businessmen. The tax collector was considered a traitor because he was siding with the Romans and, and pretty rich. The political zealot was pretty much the polar opposite of the tax collector. He was out wanting to bring down the Roman rule and the Pharisee thought he was above all of that. And somehow they come together and they're the apostles. They're the, the foundation of the church. The church includes the rich and the poor, James chapter two. Why do you tell a rich person when they come in, come and sit in this good seat next to me and you poor person grab a seat on the floor. So even there, you see what's happening is coming into the church are the rich and the poor. Uh, James even goes on to say, isn't it the rich who take you to court? So these people come together, even though the rich are taking the poor to court and doing those kind of things, but they're united in the church. What we've been hearing in chapters 14 and 15 is the church involves those who are weak in faith. They have food issues, maybe vegetarians, and those who eat anything. They, um, they have people who pay specific attention to which days they do things on, and those who don't care, they do think all the days are the same. They have people who are really picky about drinking alcohol and people who aren't. Um, what do those folks have in common? What's drawing them to the church? 
then think about uh, the church in Antioch from Acts chapter 11. It, it contained all ethnicities and nationalities. Stephen, it says in chapter 11, spoke the word to none but the Jews. But there were some of these men from Cyprus and Cyrene who came to Antioch and spoke to the Hellenists also. So do you see what you get in there? You're getting the Jews. Cyprus is that island off of Turkey. Cyrene is on the northern coast of Africa. And then the Hellenists would be people from Greek-speaking lands all coming together in this church. So the, the real big picture of this, where this kind of leads, is not just human associations like the Rotary Club, but something much bigger, much grander. And that comes from uh, Revelation chapter 7. John says, And I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. That, talk about a diverse group. There is no ethnicity within the church that would divide us. There is no this church or that church. In the final days, standing before the throne is the church. And what unifies that disparate group? What, what unifies all of these different types of people? Well, John doesn't leave us hanging. Verse 10, he says, they were standing there with robes and palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What unites us, what draws us together, what makes the church the church is salvation from God and the Lamb. And that's what draws us together. That's how we can have different opinions on all kinds of things, different views on all sorts of things, and yet come together. Because in the end, the church is God's supernatural creation. It's something that he has done. And so this morning, when we look through this, this section, we're going to see, first of all, verses 8 and 9 are talk about Jesus' service. Uh, that's what the service that Jesus provides. Then we'll see uh, 10 through 12, this, this has been God's plan along. And then finally, in verse 13, we'll look at our hope. So for Jesus' service, um, now, to, before we look at this, don't forget that Jesus is the model for us, right? Uh, uh, in uh, chapter 3 of this, or in, in, in verse 3 of this chapter, we heard that um, we should be united because this is what Jesus is like. This is what he does. We, he bears with our weakness. He, he deals with those who are weaker in faith. And so our service will look like his. Remember from chapter 8 that we're being conformed to his image. So as he does these things, we wind up looking more and more like him. So this is now where Paul is going to explain something about Jesus that will show us this. And, and here's what he says. He says, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to conform, uh, confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So he, Paul starts with Jesus became a servant. Jesus was not always a servant. He became, at one point he wasn't, and then he became a servant. And so that, that reminds you of what Paul told the Philippians in Philippians chapter 2, verse, beginning of verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So this is an example of, of Paul showing us that Jesus existed in the form of God. Jesus was eternally the second person of the Trinity, the eternally begotten Son of God. And he added to himself human form in the form of a servant. So when Paul says here, I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, he wasn't, and then he was. And so in uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus himself says, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So that helps us answer that question. How did Jesus become a servant to the circumcision? Well, he served them not by becoming a slave to every Jew who walked by, but he became a servant by giving his life as a ransom for many. So his service to the Jews was to pay a ransom for their, their disobedience so that they could be saved from God's wrath. That's what it means for Jesus to become a servant to the circumcision. So he became what he wasn't in order to rescue them. So the, uh, the, Jesus became a servant to the circumcised. Now, he became a servant to the Jewish people. Uh, circumcised is a metonymy for the Jewish folks. It's not just, uh, you know, having to do with uh, circumcision. It was just Paul's way of talking about the Jews in general. So notice that Jesus came. He didn't come as a Roman or a Greek or a Babylonian. Jesus came when he took on human nature. He came as a Jew. And so why? Why is that? Well, why would he pick the Jews of all people? Why didn't he become somebody else? Um, Paul explains that in the very next phrase. He says that Jesus became a, a servant to the circumcised. Why? To show God's truthfulness. To show God's truthfulness was his purpose in joining the Jews. So what's the connection there? What, why the Jews? Why would it not show God's uh, truthfulness to become a Roman? Um, Hebrews chapter 6 explains that. It unpacks it for us pretty well. Hebrews 6, beginning in verse 13, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final, for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So what, what, what the author of Hebrews is saying is that God made a promise to Abraham so because of this promise to Abraham, in order to make it sure, he swore an oath. He made a promise. We would call it made a covenant with, with Abraham. He bound himself in this covenant to do this thing for Abraham. And it's impossible for God to lie. So the promise that he made to Abraham had to be fulfilled. The reason Jesus came as a Jew was in order to fulfill this promise, to demonstrate God's truthfulness. He does not, he cannot lie. Because what God had promised to Abraham is that his seed would be a blessing to the nations. And, and that's what Jesus did. He became a servant to the Jews, a, a, a part of that nation, in order to be a blessing to everybody. And so 
God's truthfulness is shown in Jesus' coming. And then he says the reason that he did that, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. So God's truthfulness is tied to those promises. That's, that's what the Hebrew passage said. God's promises to the patriarch are fulfilled in Jesus becoming a servant. And so though Paul mentions the circumcision in this context, I don't think it context, I don't think it makes it, um, I don't think it justifies limiting God's truthfulness to only his fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, because that's where circumcision was implemented. I think what he's talking about is he says patriarchs, plural. So that would be all of the Old Testament. All of the Old Covenant promises were fulfilled in him. Um, and we'll see that in the next section when we look at, at God's plan, what he was going to do all along. So it, Jesus became a servant to the Jews in order to show God's truthfulness to confirm the promises to the patriarchs so that he would show that he was going to re, uh, remain faithful to his covenant promises. And the end of that is in order that the Gentiles may glorify God. So this is the, the first time in our section so far, 14, 15, that God is, or that uh, Paul has really mentioned the Jew-Gentile distinction. And um, I think it would be a mistake to take the Jew-Gentile division and impose it back on chapter 14 um, and somehow say, well, the Jews were weak, but the Gentiles were strong. Um, I think there's plenty of examples through the New Testament where that goes back and forth. And there's probably people in the Jewish camp who were strong and weak and people in the Gentile camp who were strong and weak. So I don't think he's doing the Jew-Gentile thing and now he finally reveals that. So then why bring it up here? Why, why mention the Jew-Gentile distinction at this point? Well, I think what's going on is Paul started back at the beginning of chapter 14 with that problem of division in the church. You who are weak, welcome the, or you who are, uh, welcome the weak, though not to argue with them. There, there's this struggle in the church. And so what he's been arguing is he's been leading us through these things that divide us. And now he's really at the biggest one that the church at his time faced, which was the distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles. So he's taking this and he's showing us that Jesus can remedy the distinctions that we have between ourselves on a small scale or on a giant scale like this, because he became a servant in order that the Gentiles may glorify God. And, and so he brings all of that together to say, if Jesus could do this, if he could remedy the distinction between Jew and Gentile, which by the first century had become very strong and very bitter, well, surely he could deal with something like the weaker brother who has uh, scruples about what he eats or, or what day he worships or, or what he eats on what days or whatever those things are. Surely he could deal with that if he's dealing with this bigger thing. So he's kind of arguing to this, this grander scale, showing the scope of Jesus reuniting us, of Jesus drawing, drawing us together. So Jesus became a servant to the circumcision to show God's truthfulness to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs in order that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. It is what God is. Why would the Gentiles glorify God? Because he's had mercy. And really, this is what Paul has been arguing in the first half of this whole thing is, remember, he started by talking about our need for salvation. And he talked about the Gentiles who didn't have God. They didn't have the law. They didn't know any of this stuff. And yet, the gospel is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, even those Gentiles, even those, those Gentiles who are worshiping false gods. So when the Gentiles turn, they magnify God's glory for his mercy. 
because he's extended tremendous mercy to them. And, and that's what it means to be justified by faith is they couldn't have done this by obeying the law. They didn't have the law. And the law was never intended to make somebody just. It was given to add sin, to increase sin. So when he turns to the Gentiles, it's not like he stopped dealing with the Jews or now he's going to deal with the Gentiles who are plan B. What he's doing is he's saying, I'm extending my mercy and amplifying it and sending it out to the ends of the world. And what we see, what Paul says next is, this was God's plan all along. This was always what he was going to do. This kind of reinforces that, that statement he made about confirming the promises to the patriarchs, is he quotes four scriptures. So let's take a look at this now. Let's take a look at these four scriptures. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. So this is actually from 2 Samuel chapter 22, which is uh, David's song of victory. This is when God had established David, secured his throne, secured the nation, and David explodes in praise. So it comes from 2 Samuel 22, and this one's from verse 50. Now, that is repeated. That whole uh, psalm that he sings in, in 2 Samuel 22 is repeated as Psalm 18. Uh, but it historically happened in David's reign, and then it was taken when the, the book of Psalms was put together. So really, I, I would say it's primarily from 2 Samuel. So in 2 Samuel, David is acknowledging God has secured him, and he says, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I'll praise you among the nations. Um, you have secured me. You have established my throne, and I'm not going to hide. I'm going to announce to you to everybody around me. That was from 2 Samuel. The next one, um, the next verse, verse 10, he says, and again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Now, this one is actually quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 32. Um, Moses, at, as he's drawing close to his death, as he's nearing the time when he's, he's told, go up on the mountain and die, um, he teaches Israel this song. And it's a long, beautiful song. Chapter 32 is really filled with it. But Moses turns to the people and he teaches, teaches them this song, this, this explosion of praise to God. And right in the middle of it is this tremendous promise that the Gentiles will rejoice with God's people. Jew and Gentile will come together and rejoice together. So that's Deuteronomy chapter 32. And then in verse 11 um, says, and again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let the peoples extol him. Now, this one is from Psalms 117. And Psalm 117 is the end of the Psalter, the, the final portion of the Psalter is what's called the Songs of Ascent. And this is this would be the songs that the Jews would sing as they're going up to Jerusalem to come to the temple to worship on feast days and festival days, or just out of joy that they're coming to worship God. So this psalm, Psalm 117, is that psalm of ascent as, as the Jews are going to Jerusalem to worship, as they're going to praise, they command the people around them. They, they announce through this song, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples, all the nations, all folks extol him. That's part of their praise. And then the last one is verse 12. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. Now, obviously, this one's from Isaiah. Um, but Isaiah is, is saying that the root of Jesse, this descendant, this offspring from Jesse, 
Jesse was David's father. David was Solomon's father and on and on and on until we get to Jesus. This is the root of Jesse. He will arise to rule the Gentiles and, and he will rule the Gentiles. That's, that's going to happen. He's doing it now in the church because what he, what he says next is he quotes, well, the first part is from uh, Isaiah chapter 11. Um, but that last phrase, in him will the Gentiles hope, that's the Greek version of Isaiah 42. And so when Paul draws those together, he, he kind of illuminates this root of Jesse to show that it's Jesus. And then he brings us to what Jesus will do in him, the Gentiles will hope. So think about that for a second. What Paul has just done is he's gone through the major divisions of the Bible, the Old Testament, as the Jews would see them, and he's picked out verses that show what Jesus will do among the Gentiles. The history books, the books of history would be 2 Samuel. The law is Deuteronomy. That's considered part of the Torah. Something that There's a section called the writings, which contains the Psalms and wisdom and some other uh, uh, things in there. The Psalms are considered the writings, or sometimes they're referred to just distinctly as the Psalms. And then the prophets, Isaiah is quoted. So what, what Paul has done is he's picked up all these things throughout redemptive history, throughout all the sections, the major divisions of the Bible, and he's shown this was what God was going to always do. He always was going to include the Gentiles. He was always going to bring the Gentiles to praise. Now, he was going to do that because he was going to bring to this earth Jesus. Jesus was the promised one from Abraham, actually from the garden, um, when Eve's seed would be said to crush the head of the serpent. So he, Paul drags us through, he, he leads us through redemptive history, picking out all of these different verses to show us this was God's plan all along. This is what he was always planning on doing. That's why in verse four of this chapter, he said, for whatever is written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. He's just demonstrated that for us. This is the look at the church. This has always been God's plan. This is not plan B. This is not, well, that didn't work. Let's try something else. This was always the idea was that the Jews would be the ones through whom the Messiah would come. And through them, the Messiah then would bring in the nations and, and draw them in. And so where does it go? It goes to our hope. So verse 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Hope is where this is going. What is hope? Well, first of all, he says, the God of hope will fill you with all joy. So what joy is, joy is, um, I was reading uh, John Piper's definition of it. It is a, a positive feeling. So it is a feeling. It's, it's, um, it is an emotion and it's an emotional experience. It is a, a positive feeling in our spirit. It, it's within us by the Holy Spirit. And so that's what joy is, is I, I was thinking about it a little differently than Piper, but I thought he hit some, some good points. Joy is an, a deep assurance in us, a deep rooted assurance in us that no matter what comes our way, God is in charge. So we can rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because we're not looking at our sufferings and saying these are pointless. There's no benefit to this. There's nothing gained from any of this. We look at it instead with joy and say, God is working something tremendous in me. God is causing all things to work together for my good and for his glory. 
So that's the idea of joy is it's this deep rooted assurance that God is with us. He's working with us. He's working in us. It is supernaturally brought because that's what he says here by the power of the Holy Spirit. But he says, God will fill you with hope and with joy. So what's the relationship between hope and joy? How are you, how are you filled with both? If you have joy, which is not always happiness, it's not always a gleeful uh, uh, attitude. Sometimes it's, it's deeply troubled. But if you have that joy, that, that assurance that God is working on your behalf, that fills you with hope. And, and that's the biblical view of hope, which is this thing that I have been assured of in the future, I will actually receive it. I may not have it now, but I, I know that it is coming. And that's what I'm waiting for. Not the way we use hope, which is, gee, it's highly unlikely, but wouldn't it be nice if? Um, this is not highly unlikely, wouldn't it be nice? This is, I have an assurance of something that I can't see yet, something that hasn't arrived yet. So God, because he fills us with joy, that generates in us hope. We, we trust that he is working. We have the scriptures bring, brought to us to explain his promises, to point us in that right direction, and that fills us with hope. And it fills us with peace. So we get joy, hope, and peace. How do we re receive peace in this? It's all tied together with the joy and hope. We have peace because we look at these things and we say, Jesus promised he would build his church and that the gates of hell wouldn't prevail against it. So whatever the government is up to right now, it will not prevail against the church. Whatever is going on in Myanmar right now, the, the military junta will not quench the church. Whatever is happening in China as they're locking up Uyghurs and, and destroying churches, we can look at that and have peace because we know that is not going to end the church. There is nothing China can do to end the church of Jesus Christ. So in the trouble, in the turmoil, we can have peace. What about a peace, in peace? <laughs> can we have peace when there's peace? It's a little harder because we can begin to take things for granted when we're not being uh, challenged in those ways. But it is God's work to fill us with joy, hope, and peace in believing. And, and we're right back to the first half of the book. We can't take two steps in the book of Romans and be away from the idea that we are justified by faith or by grace through faith. We, we have these things because we know that we've been justified by faith. In other words, our works don't contribute to it. Our situation doesn't contribute to our justification. Jesus' righteousness has been applied to us because we believe, and therefore we can have joy and hope and peace. And that's by the power of the Holy Spirit. The, the Holy Spirit is what's working in us to cause these things to come together. And that was Paul's point with showing that Jesus would be the servant to the circumcision, so that the truthfulness of God would be affirmed, so that the promises to the Gent or to the uh, patriarchs would come to fruition, and the Gentiles would hope. That's why we need to see this, is because this is the Holy Spirit. He wrote those things down for us, so that we might have encouragement through them, and that we might be filled with that hope. Because what God is doing is He's working actively to fulfill all of those promises. So we're, we're standing in these last days. Um, with various struggles around us, including a pandemic, which is, has shut the doors of our building, which has prevented us from meeting in person and, and is pushing us to meet online. We can stand in the middle of that and still have hope, joy, and peace because we know Jesus is the one who's building this church.
Jesus is the one who at work. It's the Holy Spirit who has assured us through his scriptures that we may abound in that hope. And so that is the goal of why do we have to put up with the weaker folks? Let's go back to the beginning of 14. Why do we have to put up with weaker folks? Why do we have to put up with people who don't have the same scruples that we do about days or eating or drinking? Uh, why do we have to do that? That we may abound in hope because the church is the supernatural work of God. It, it's not like the Rotary Club. It's not like the PTA. It, it's not just this voluntary human association. There is something deep rooted, something very supernatural, something spiritual, holy spiritual that happens in the church. And that is what he's working on. It's what he's been working on since the very beginning. And when we glimpsed uh, Revelation chapter seven, it's what he will accomplish in the end. That is the function. That is his church. And so this is why we can struggle to live together in peace. Why we can work to say, I don't agree with this person, but I still worship with them and love them in Christ. Why we can look at the folks who are weaker in faith and not despise them or ridicule them, but help build them up. That, that's the whole point is because the church is God's supernatural work. It's what he's been doing. So I want to ask you in closing, do you believe in the Holy Catholic Apostolic Church? Is that something that you could confess you believe in? And that is not the, the church that's at the Vatican in Rome. That is not the what's, the, what's called now the um, uh, Apostolic and Prophetic Reformation or uh, something like that that's going on, churches that, that claim they have apostles and prophets. That's not what that's talking about. That's talking about the church that Jesus has built. Can you say, I believe in one holy Catholic apostolic church? Do you believe that? You have to believe it. Because what we experience physically is part of it, but it's not the fullness of it. There's, there's something more because it is what God has been supernaturally working on since the fall. It, it's been his, his purpose all along. With that, let's close in prayer. Lord, um, we do confess that we believe in one holy. We are made holy. We are not holy in and of ourselves, Lord. We have received through justification by faith alone. We have received the, the, the righteousness of, of Christ. And so we are holy. We believe in one holy, Catholic, universal across the globe. There is no um, distinction in the end between the different types of churches, the different colors of skin in the church, the different uh, um, social or economic or cultural differences in the church. There is one holy Catholic universal. Lord, you have built one church and it is your church, the church of Jesus Christ across the globe. And we confess that this morning. We believe in that because Lord, it is your work. It's what you're accomplishing throughout the ages. And so, Lord, I pray for Trinity Community Church. I pray for all of us that you would be building us, that you would work in us to accomplish your purposes, that we may abound in hope. Especially, Lord, we need it now in these, these uh, times of social distancing and all the, uh, the whirlwind of rules that keep changing and, and coming and going. Lord, in the midst of that, I pray that you would root us in hope, hope in the, the salvation we have in Jesus Christ, Hope in the work that you're doing in me and in them and in each other and getting to see all of that come together. Lord, help us to grow and to build each other up. 
for your purposes and for your glory, that the Gentiles may glory in you. And it's in your name, Jesus, we ask. Amen. So with that, uh, let's close our service. Um, the benediction, again, has to come from the message. I think it, uh, the last week it ended on what sounded like a benediction. This week it ends on what sounds like a benediction. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Amen.